Hello, it's a pleasure to have your company. Thanks for tuning in to Search for Truth. This week, your Bible teacher Brian Johnston brings the second talk in this series called Fence Post Turtles. In case you missed last week's explanation, Brian will remind us where the term originates, uh, for it's uh, an introduction to the study of six Bible characters that we're looking at in this series. Today, we look at another very prominent uh, Old Testament individual by the name of Daniel. So now let's hear from Brian. Okay, thanks, John. As you've said, let me remind you what that pastor once said. He said, when I was a schoolboy, we would occasionally see a turtle on a fence post. And when we did, we knew someone had put him there. He didn't get there by himself. In the Bible, we come across many fence post turtles if we may refer to people by that term, in the way described by the pastor whom we've just again referenced. By that I mean that in the Bible we encounter one person after another who knew that his or her privileged position of power or whose promotion was given to them by God. Some, if not all, of these people were very humble. But humility is not denying what others consider to be your good contribution. Rather, it's freely acknowledging how little of that is down to you and how much of it is down to God. In this study, our Bible fence post turtle is Daniel. As a young man, Daniel found himself catapulted into a hostile environment, but one which we can increasingly relate to in the modern Western world. From a privileged background, Life for Daniel changed dramatically when he was taken captive and injected into the court of the Babylonian monarch. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful sovereign ever to rule the world. He'd got such a feel for holding absolute power at court that at times he exuded the confidence that God didn't exist. The corridors of power, the entire education system and whatever mass media existed then were all filled with a kind of thinking that was radically different to that of Daniel and his three closest friends. The world Daniel had been plunged into at the pinnacle of the Babylonian Empire was a world that squeezed everything into its mould and didn't tolerate alternative views. Sounds familiar? Isn't it what we as Christians face in the modern world? Take, for example, opinions with regard to origins science. Conventional wisdom today is a long way from what the Bible says. Relatively few people, generally the scientists with the most relevant background, appreciate that it's really philosophy, not facts, that shapes the modern view of origins. This is very different from the solid experimental science which has won for us a good measure of understanding of light, electricity and gravity and so on. But let's come back to Daniel, although I suggest it's worth having these digressions so that we realise the relevance of his situation to ours. The externals may be different, but the issues brought into focus are the same as we face today. You see, he was a man whose native land had been overrun in his youth, and now he was a deportee in a foreign culture, confronting the greatest autocrat ever. I don't think it's going too far to say that. After all, didn't God describe Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold? His experience was one of pure power. So then, what was Daniel to do? Should he go with the flow? He was away from home and family and all past expectations. He was completely cut free from his moorings. 
He now had freedom to become whatever he needed to become in order to increase his chances of survival in a totally foreign culture. What more was there to lose? Had he not already lost everything that previously mattered to him? Desperate times surely justify desperate means, do they not? But the Bible tells us something amazing about this man Daniel. He even rejects a ham sandwich when there was no one to criticise them for eating it. Now, forgive me, the Bible doesn't exactly specify it like that, but I do think that conveys a reasonably accurate impression of how Daniel was unwilling to compromise in even the slightest way with the food laws he'd been brought up with. For him to make such a stand, he must surely have considered the detailed commands within the law of Moses to be an essential part of who he was within his relationship with God. Such things struck at the heart of who he saw himself as being. So if we smile patronisingly when I talk about Daniel avoiding even a ham sandwich, I think it might mean that we see it as no big deal, and that shows that we are not like Daniel. His beliefs were convictions, not preferences. The United Nations have found it necessary to distinguish between a preference and a conviction as they try to respect people in fair judgments. They've said, a preference is a belief you would be prepared to change under pressure, but a conviction is a belief that you would never change, no matter what the pressure was. In the small matter of the ham sandwich, or whatever it was, we're introduced in Daniel chapter 1 to a man of total integrity in his convictions, someone who in the battle for ideas was quite prepared to take on the world. As we come into chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is bossing the world, not only incomparably powerful, but he's real smart too. If you thought he was the absent-minded incompetent who forgot his own dreams, you've got the wrong man. Asking the candidate interpreters to state the dream first before proceeding to give its interpretation was simply his strategy to have a way of evaluating the answer given. Oh, and did I mention he was ruthless, for he authorised the execution of all the intelligentsia for their inability to do this. That would have included Daniel and his three friends, of course. They weren't going to be exempted from such a, a petulant and blanket edict. So this is some test, a real tight spot. Daniel's got 24 hours to live. The pressure on young Daniel was immense. But he's God's man, and God's man comes through. If you're in touch with God, you can withstand the full brunt of the power of a society or a culture or even an empire. Daniel proves it, as do his three friends in the next chapter of this unfolding drama. Faced with the world's most powerful man, the world's hottest fire, the world's loudest band, the entire population, as directed, falls to its knees before a graven image. All except Daniel's three friends. This, you remember, from the Ten Commandments, was strictly prohibited. It's here we see a vital spiritual law demonstrated, and one that will again be required for the prophetic times lying ahead, when those who know their God will again need to do exploits. Each of the great prophecy books of Daniel and Revelation were given in times of extreme adversity. In chapter 4 of Daniel, we have the testimony of this colossal leader of empire, the Colossus who was Nebuchadnezzar. When he refused to acknowledge the true God, he became bestial. 
But using the witness of Daniel and his companions, God changed even that supreme monarch and brought him round to acknowledge the book's thesis that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. After straddling an overnight change of world empire in chapter 5 and facing a den full of once slavering lions in chapter 6 and absorbing appalling apocalyptic visions in chapter 7, Daniel enters into the role of elder statesman. It's not my intention to go into details about these things, but I do want to set the scene for our final challenge in this way. It's been 50 years since a temple last stood at Jerusalem. It's now been 70 years since the deportation, and many more than that since Daniel's compatriots had first begun to spurn God's laws. But I want to show you that though they may have succeeded in taking the man of God away from the house of God, the Babylonians had spectacularly failed to take God's house away from God's man, from Daniel. What do I mean by that? Allow me to explain. As we turn to chapter 9 of the Bible book that bears his name, we discover that Daniel's daily schedule of timekeeping is still being regulated by the timetable of the altar belonging to God's house at Jerusalem, the one which by this time has been demolished at least 50 years before. What's even more revealing is the fact that his undistracted thoughts are overshadowed by the spectre of the desolate sanctuary there. And his outlook is ever through the open window of his prayer chamber, a window strategically opened toward the place of God's name at Jerusalem. Let me show you where I'm getting that from, because it's made such an impression on me that I really want to share it with you. We read that Daniel went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And in chapter 9 we hear him praying, O Lord, hear! O Lord, forgive! O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not, for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand. Just before this, Daniel had opened the Bible book of Jeremiah the prophet and had been arrested, no, not by the secret police, but by the Spirit of God, for he discovered that in God's prescribed will, the discipline of his people, even their banishment away from Jerusalem, would be for a 70-year term. And now he realises that the time is up. He turns the information, which so grips him at the moment, into passionate prayer. I wonder, are you cynical about answered prayer? When you take such a man as Daniel, a man of godly integrity, who's correctly understanding God's agenda, and who so really means business in fired-up prayer, see what happens. That prayer penetrates heaven. It becomes decisive in tipping the scales in a cosmic contest fought between angelic beings. Read about that for yourself in chapter 10 of Daniel. The result of which is projected down to earth and is reflected in the astounding foreign policy developments of a newly rising empire and leads to God's temple being rebuilt once more. Let me close by saying this. If you were in a minority of one against the world, 
would you retain your convictions about God and his house and what it means to be in a church of God? I hope you enjoyed today's talk and if you'd like one of the free booklets of all these programs in the series then write in and ask for the title Fence Post Turtles. There are several other ways to access past booklets and programs which I'll explain in a moment but first I'm about to give you our contact details so if you've got pen and paper to hand here they are. Search for Truth, Church of God Downing Drive, Leicester LE5, 6LN, UK. I'll repeat that. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester LE5, 6LN, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, as I said earlier, uh, there are different ways of accessing past programmes. For instance, by looking up www.searchfortruth.org.uk, you'll find our church's main website where you can download some actual programmes and the accompanying transcripts and access other helpful material. And in addition to that, you might be interested to know that many titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into e-books and are available at Amazon. So if you put in amazon.co.uk forward slash kindle dash ebooks and then type search for truth series into the search box, then you'll find them. So many thanks for being with us today. And next week we look at another Old Testament character. And this time it's a beautiful woman named Esther. So do join us. Until then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. Uh, goodbye and may God richly bless you. Many mighty men are lost, daring not to stop.